Amen. Thank you, Randy and Fred, for leading that time. And appreciate you all being so open and transparent about what's going on in your lives and giving us an opportunity to, to lift, one, lift one another up in prayer. And um, that's what we're here for, you know. And, and uh, sometimes we, I think we, um, you know, just assume that maybe not as much ministry happens on Wednesday night because there's not as many people here as there are on Sunday mornings, right? Sunday morning just feels full and, you know, a lot of things happen, a lot of people here, a lot of things happening, and, and then here we come on Wednesday night. But uh, I think sometimes maybe even more ministry takes place on Wednesday night because we can get closer to one another and get more intimate with one another as we uh, get to know uh, it's just a smaller context and, and we can uh, kind of share our, our hurts and our, our concerns and our joys and express those things. So uh, appreciate you being here and uh, loving on one another. Well, I want to encourage you to take your Bibles now and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. One of my all-time favorite verses uh, in the Scriptures, and it's a verse that we've uh, covered a, a number of times over the years, but I want to talk about it with you guys tonight. Um, it, it's just one of those passages that I probably have gotten more mileage out of uh, in, in uh, my own personal walk with the Lord, but also in my uh, uh, opportunities that the Lord gives me to counsel others. Uh, I've probably quoted 1 Corinthians 10, 13 more than any other verse uh, in, in counseling sessions over the years that I've, I've been counseling. So uh, it's a verse you're all familiar with, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Paul wrote this, he said, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Father, we thank you again for your holy word. We thank you that it's living and active and powerful, able to transform our lives. And Lord, so we're coming uh, this, this evening expecting you to do great and mighty things in our lives. And we ask that your word would accomplish its work in our lives Lord, that you might change us, you might grow us, you might transform us more into the image of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, since the beginning of time, it's been a constant part of human existence. Every person who has ever lived has had to deal with it. Every person who will ever live will have to deal with it. It affects the greatest of men and the lowest of men, the smartest and the stupidest, the strongest and the weakest, the biggest, the smallest, the richest, the poorest. It doesn't matter who you are or where you go. No one is safe from it. There's no place to hide from it. It relentlessly pursues all of us everywhere we go. Over the centuries, people have tried virtually everything to avoid it, to resist it, to shield themselves from it, and even punish themselves for it. But all of us, at one time or another, have given into it. What is it? Temptation. I want to ask you a question tonight as we begin. What is your toughest temptation? What is your toughest temptation? I'm referring to that stubborn habit that you constantly battle with but never seem to be able to gain the victory over it. That sin that constantly nips at your heels or, or stares you in the face on a regular basis that you've tried for months, maybe even years, to overcome. You've tried to stop many times. You've begged God to deliver you from it. You've gone to him countless times to confess it and repent of it, and you've determined in your heart to never do it again. And you enjoy a, a season of victory and rest, and just when you think you finally conquered that bad habit, that same temptation comes raging back to life with what seems to be even greater strength and fury than ever before, and you do it again. You blow it again. And if you're like me, it causes you to despair. It's frustrating, isn't it, to fall for the same temptation 
the same trick of Satan. It's, it, 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 you, see, you feel so stupid stepping into the same trap over and over again. And it saps your spiritual vitality. It steals your joy. It, it destroys your communion with God. It, it weakens your relationships with your family and your friends. It makes you ineffective in your ministry. It hinders your witness to the lost. And so it causes you, you to despair. It also causes you to doubt. You've begun to believe that this is just the way you are and you, the way you'll always be. And you begin to wonder if, if it's even possible to overcome this temptation. You maybe even have begun to lose hope of ever gaining the victory over this particular sin in your life. Well, I want you to know, and more importantly, God wants you to know tonight that there is hope. It's possible to overcome your toughest temptation. You can have victory over that stubborn sin no matter what it is. I don't care what it is. Hopefully you all have a, a, a tough temptation right, right here. You're thinking about it right now because I want you to take what we learned tonight from God's word and apply it to that particular temptation, that struggle, that sinful habit. In a couple weeks, uh, Kelly and I will have an opportunity to go to Singapore. Uh, never been there before as a couple and uh, we've been invited to go do a, a youth camp at a church called Fishers of Men Church in Singapore. And uh, so we're going to have a chance to, to, to teach over there. And um, the, the series that they asked me to do was uh, a series on overcoming sin and temptation. And so we're choosing to call it the ultimate fight, battling sin and temptation. And as I was thinking through, uh, number one, what I could do for the next couple of weeks uh, here, because we only have two more weeks left to our, our, our spring semester here at the bridge, and then we're going to jump into our summer super study uh, in the middle of, of June and July. I thought, well, we've got two weeks. What am I going to do with these two weeks, right? I can't really start a series. Uh, you know, let's start studying the book of Isaiah. And we'll, we'll finish it in two weeks, you know? I don't think so. Um, so I thought I'd, I'd, I'd give me an opportunity to really think through uh, this series in preparation for Singapore and, and uh, as I was thinking that through and, and thinking about what, what does it mean to fight sin and to battle temptation, and I thought, where, where is the best place to start? Well, when you talk about fighting sin and temptation, where is the best place to start? And, and I couldn't think of a better place to start than in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, to, 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 to start with hope. Because there's nothing more discouraging and disheartening in this life than our battle with sin and temptation. And what, what we need more than anything when we think about sin and temptation is we need, we need hope. And so the, the opening message that I want to share with these young people in Singapore is, is, is I want to help you fight with hope. And, and, and so we're going to start on a positive note, right? Fighting with hope. And so... 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is, is, is chock full of hope. In fact, this is, this is probably one of the most familiar verses in the entire Bible, but the one that is maybe the most forgotten in times of temptation. It's one of the most memorized and quoted verses, but sadly one of the ones that's most often unapplied. And there have been countless books written on how to overcome temptation, um, countless sermons preached on how to overcome temptation, but in just one verse, Paul very simply and practically summarizes everything that we need to know about overcoming temptation. Now, the key to, to understanding this verse accurately, interpreting it accurately and applying it appropriately is, is obviously the context here. And, and so we're just kind of parachuting right down in the middle of the book of 1 Corinthians, and so we need to kind of take a, a step back and, and, and understand where we landed. Um, this letter was Paul's way of addressing some problems in the church in Corinth, and the Corinthian Christians were, in some ways, uh, new believers. They had been recently saved out of a pagan past, and, and they were enjoying their newfound freedom in Christ, and, and when Paul got to chapter 8, uh, he reminded them that when they exercise their Christian liberty in the gray areas and things that uh, aren't specifically black or white, right or wrong in the scriptures, like, for instance, meat, eating meat offered to idols, uh, he, 
he, he told them they needed to remember a couple principles. The first principle was uh, avoid being a stumbling block to others. And in chapter 8, verse 8, he says that, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat nor the better if we do eat, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And so he's saying, listen, don't, don't uh, abuse your liberty, right? Uh, take advantage of your liberty and do what you're free to do, eating meat offered to idols, and then become a stumbling block to your brother. Don't do that. And then secondly, the, the second principle they need to be mindful of is, is, is to avoid disqualifying themselves. Avoid disqualifying yourself. And uh, notice at the end of verse nine, or chapter 9, verse 27, he says, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And so he's reminding them here, hey, listen, be careful that you don't offend others or cause others to stumble and you don't disqualify yourself. By exercising your freedom in Christ. And then in chapter 10, he expanded and illustrated this second principle about disqualifying yourselves. And in verses 1 through 10, he showed how Israel abused their freedom and how they fell into sin. And then verse 11, he says, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So he says they they served as an example. The nation of Israel served as an example so you wouldn't forfeit your usefulness like they forfeited their usefulness by craving uh, for sinful things and being idolatrous and acting immorally and grumbling and, and all the things that they were guilty of. And then notice verse 12. He says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And so Paul was warning the Corinthians against Pride and being overconfident. And apparently the Corinthian believers thought they thought more highly of themselves than they ought. And they should have. They thought they were mature enough to handle their, their freedom in Christ and they could dabble in self-gratification and not be affected by it. And so he says, listen, if you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. Now, at this point, if you were tracking with the Corinthians here as they read this letter and Paul was talking about disqualifying himself and and then he used the example of the Israelites who disqualify themselves and he's saying listen you be careful because if you're not careful you'll disqualify yourself as well they probably at this point after verse 11 or after verse 12 were wondering how in the world could they possibly avoid following into falling into the temptations and the sins that Paul had just got done describing here and so I think Paul recognized kind of how he was leading them in their thought, uh, and so he wanted them not to lose heart. He, he wanted to comfort them. He wanted to encourage them, and so he comes to verse 13, and he says this, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who, was, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. And so what is he doing there? He's, a, he's assuring them that they didn't have to fall into sin, that they could overcome temptation. And I think that's why, in my opinion, this, this is the, well, I wouldn't say the, it's, it's one of the most encouraging verses in the entire Bible. And, and the way I like to look at this verse is, is that what Paul does here is he, he makes some promises to us. He, he makes three promises that give us hope that we can overcome any temptation. And these three promises are, are based on and rooted in not Paul's wisdom, Paul's experience, but they're based on, they're rooted in God's faithfulness. Notice how he, he, he words this. He says, no temptation is overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful. I encourage you to underline that little expression, that little phrase in your Bible, circle it, star it, put some brackets around it, because I think that phrase is really the key to unlocking the meaning and the application of this verse. Literally, in the original language, it doesn't say God is faithful, it says faithful is God. And so Paul was deliberately and intentionally placing the emphasis on God's what? Faithfulness. And I think these 
these three simple words, God is faithful or faithful is God, really express the central truth out of which these three promises that we're going to look at flow. And when, when we say God is faithful, what, what are we saying there? What do we mean? When God is faithful, we, we basically mean he keeps his what? Promises. He can be trusted. He can be counted on to keep his word. He is faithful. And so God's faithfulness is, is the ultimate source of hope in the midst of trial and temptation. You might remember a, a number of years ago when we went through the book of Lamentations here on Wednesday night, and we, we got to Lamentations chapter 3, and, and this is a, one of the most depressing books in the Bible uh, where Jeremiah is lamenting, he's grieving uh, the destruction of Jerusalem uh, because of sin, they experienced the, the, the uh, Judah had experienced the consequences of their rebellion against God, and God just brought the, 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 the enemies in and, and just destroyed uh, the, the city of Jerusalem. And here he is weeping uh, over the ashes. And in Lamentations chapter 3 is really kind of the turning point, the, 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 the peak of the book. This is what he says in Lamentations chapter 3. He says, my soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness, so I say my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. In other words, I'd lost all hope. And then he said this, remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to mine, and therefore I have hope. So he said, I had lost hope, but then I remembered something that Gave me hope again. What was it? Verse 22, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. What's the next phrase? Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I have hope in him. And so, I don't think you can understand that phrase, God is faithful, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, without going back to the Old Testament and, and, and seeing how the Old Testament saints found their hope in the faithfulness of God. So how does God demonstrate his faithfulness when we're tempted? I mean, what, what, what can we trust him and count on him for whenever we face temptation in our battle with sin? What can we, what, what can we count on God for? Well, there's three promises here. Number one, no temptation is remarkable. Number two, no temptation is unbearable. And number three, no temptation is inescapable. And again, these are, these are three promises here that we can claim whenever we come face to face with that, with that tough temptation that, that will assure us that we can have victory over it, that we don't have to give in like we've done so many times before. So let's look at these promises and see how they apply uh, to that tough temptation. You got it? You, you figured it out? What's your tough temptation? Okay, let's, let's see how we can apply the word of God uh, to battle, to fight that temptation. First of all, no temptation is remarkable. He says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Now the word temptation there is where we have to begin. It's the word parasmos, and it's an interesting word uh, in the Greek. Uh, it means to test, to try, or to prove. Now, in the English language, whenever we use the word temptation, it always has what kind of connotation? A good connotation or a bad connotation? A bad connotation. It's, it, it's, it's really defined in, in the English language as some kind of seduction to evil. Whereas in the Greek language, it's a, it's a, it's a neutral word, um, it could have a good connotation. It could have a bad connotation. It all depends on the context. And so if it's in a positive context, uh, the word parasmos is more talking about a trial, a test of faith. If it's in a negative context, it's, it's, it's better translated as a temptation to sin. I think the best example of, that, of this is the, the two ways this word can be translated is in James chapter 1. You don't have to turn there because you're familiar enough with it, I'm sure. James chapter 1, verse 2 begins like this. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various what? Trials. It doesn't say temptations. It says trials. 
knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And so clearly in that positive context, uh, James was referring to trials, prosmos from the sense of a trial. But then later on, just a few verses later in James 1.13, he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own what? Lust. Negative context. So that's why the same word, same word, parosmos in, in the beginning of James, parosmos at, towards the end of the beginning of James, uh, same word translated either trial or temptation. And so we need to realize there's this important distinction that needs to be maintained between trials and temptations. Trials are from God and temptations are from Satan or your own lusts, the world, the flesh, the devil, right? God tests people to strengthen their faith, whereas Satan tempts people to weaken and destroy their faith. Every time we're, we're tempted, our faith is being put to the test. We see this in the nation of Israel. Uh, if you remember, as they were standing on the edge of the Jordan River, ready to enter the Promised Land, and, and Moses reviewed the, the, the 40 years of wilderness wandering, and this is what he said in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. I love this. He said, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And so clearly he, we see this, uh, this testing, that God was testing uh, the nation of Israel. Uh, how about this, the story of Job, right? God wanted to prove Job's righteousness, and Satan wanted to, to prove his unrighteousness. God wanted him to stand, and Satan wanted him to fall. Same thing with, with uh, Jesus, right? In, in the, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, uh, God wanted to prove his righteousness, to show that he was righteous, that he could not give in to temptation. Satan wanted to show that he, he would give in to temptation, and he wouldn't. God wanted Jesus to stand. Satan wanted Jesus to fall. And so all that to say, trials and temptations are like, are like two sides of the same coin. Life is full of trials that could very quickly and easily turn into temptations. In other words, every trial has the potential to become a temptation. It all depends on how we, what? How we respond to it. You've heard me tell this story before, but I love it every time I read it. A salesman called on a successful contractor with a bid for the materials for a large job, and the contractor uh, invited him into his office where they chatted for a moment before a secretary came and summoned the contractor into another office. And alone in the office, the salesman noticed that there was a bid from the competitor's firm on the contractor's desk with, with all the numbers written out clearly, except the total amount of the bid was hidden underneath a soda can. So he had a decision to make, and he was unable to control his, or contain his curiosity, and so the salesman thought, I'll just pick up that soda can and take a quick peek and put it back, and then I'll know what I need to bid so I get this job. Well, he picked up that soda can, and when he did, thousands of BBs came pouring out from the bottom of the can, which had been cut out, and they flooded over the surface of the desk and rained down on the floor, and without saying a word, he got up and walked out of the office and never came back because he knew he had failed the test. That contractor was testing that guy's integrity, and he failed the test. And so that remember, a temptation, in a sense, is a test of your faith. It's a test of your loyalty and allegiance to God. It's a test of your love for Christ. I'll never forget a book I read years ago by Erwin Lutzer, uh, who's now pastoring the, the Moody Church in Chicago. He wrote a book called How to Say No to a Stubborn Habit. Great book. He says this, quote, Our response to temptation is an accurate barometer of our love for God. I mean, how can you say that you really love God unless you've had to, to say no to persistent temptation? In other words, God, I love you more than I love this. And so whenever we're tempted, we, we, we should consider it a wonderful opportunity 
to show God how much we love him by saying no. And so back to our text, notice he says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. That word overtaken literally means to hold you fast in its grip. And so this is a very vivid picture, an an image here of of someone or something chasing after you and tackling you and holding you down and trying to kill you. So he's he's talking about that temptation, that that tough temptation that that attacks you, right, and grabs a hold of you and seeks to control you. He says, listen, it's, it's not but what's common to man. No temptation is overtaking you but such as is common to man. Literally, what's got you is what is human. In other words, it's, it's normal and natural to every human being. It's, it's not uncommon. It's not extraordinary. It's not remarkable. And so Paul promised that, that God will never single us out and allow us to experience some kind of special or unique temptation that no one else has ever had to deal with. We should never, ever think that we're the only ones on the entire planet that are going through what we're going through. We think that sometimes, don't we? We can never say, well, you just don't understand my situation. You don't know my spouse. You don't know my wife. You don't know my husband. You don't know my kids. You don't know my parents, my parents, my boss, my neighbor, my past, my propensities. You don't know. You don't don't understand. We can't use that as an excuse for our sin. Why? Because all people of all times have faced the same basic problems. There are no special or unique cases. And if I were to grab this microphone, where did it go? It's gone. Good thing. I was going to come around and ask you what your toughest temptation was. All right, tell us. (laughs) Spill the beans. All right, what are you struggling with, right? If I did that, you would be surprised, I think, um, and amazed at the similarities, thinking you're the only one in this room that struggles with that, whatever that is. I guarantee you'd find out there's probably three or four other people that are going through the same exact thing as you are. Now, granted, no two situations are exactly alike. There may be some unique factors or, or the circumstances may be slightly different, but the root problem is all the same. There are only a, a few common sins that we all struggle with and battle with. They're, they're just wrapped in different packages. We know that from the book of First John, First John 2.15. Uh, John says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then he goes to define, what, what, what are we talking about? What, 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 do you, what is there to love in the world? Well, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so John summarized all the sin and temptation in the world in, in three categories. It's either the lust of the flesh or it's the lust of the eyes, or it's the boastful pride of life. And so all of us face the same exact temptations. Adam and Eve, the Israelites, the Christians in Corinth, believers in Montgomery, Texas, right? We're all facing those same three temptations. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Now, I don't know about you, but it's encouraging for me to know that others are dealing with the same temptations that I am. Does that encourage you? It encourages me. 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You're like, yeah, I, get, I can relate to that. Man, he is, I always feel his hot breath right behind me, just stalking me, ready to pounce, pounce on me. But... Here's the next verse, verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith. In other words, resist the the, the attacks of Satan and and resist him and, and stand firm. Why? Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. In other words, knowing that other Christians around the world are battling with the same temptations as us and having victory over them, that's what it means by uh, are being accomplished by your brethren. They're, they're having victory over them. Should motivate us to resist the devil and stand firm. 
I have a confession to make. It's not about temptation, so don't get your hopes up. I'm going to reveal some juicy tidbit about my life. My, my confession is I am deathly afraid of roller coasters. And that's not good if you're a youth pastor, okay? Because youth pastors, one of the deals was you had to take the kids to Six Flags like every year. And so I, it was just like one of those deals that I dreaded going to the Six Flags, the amusement parks, because I wasn't about to just, you know, let on to the kids that I was scared of these things. And so, you know, it's like, what do you do? Oh, come on, let's go and go on the big thing, Goliath and all these crazy things. And, and man, I tell you what, my, my stomach just goes up in my throat every time. And my kids laugh at me because I thought I was going to, as soon as I was done being a youth pastor and became a senior pastor, I'm, like, I'm glad those days are over. Well, then I had teenagers and they like to go to Six Flags. And, and somehow mom gets the, you know, I had three, three babies and it messed up my equilibrium card. And so she can't go on these things anymore. And they don't even ask her anymore. They just let her go. But they're, oh, dad, you got to come on this thing with us. And I'm like, oh, you're kidding me, guys. And so every time we get that, go down and see the picture, right? You go down to see what the picture was. I have the same exact expression on my face. I'm, I'm like in pain. I'm just like, you know, not, you know, the kids are just like, ah they're having a great time and I'm like in pain and uh so so but but the thing seriously I gotta get I gotta get the guts up to get on these things they freak me out and so what what gets me to get on that ride was the fact that that coaster came back into the station and everyone on that thing was still in that thing and they were able to get out on their own and so I'm thinking okay Lord maybe it'll work one more time Maybe, maybe we'll, one more time it'll go, and, 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 and maybe, you know, they endured it, they experienced it, they, they survived, maybe I'll survive. And it does, it really gives me hope, you know, to get on that thing and, 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 and not run away. Let me, let me give a more, maybe more practical example of this in trying to provide hope in a counseling session. And some of you have, have heard me say this because you've been in my office uh, from time to time and, and, and maybe you've been sharing some of the, the, the difficulties you're going through in your life and the thin, things you're battling with and struggling with. And, 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 and uh, you have probably heard me say this after you, I'll sit and listen maybe for a half hour, 45 minutes, uh, the first session to find out what's going on. I, I want to gather as much data as possible. And so I just listen, and ask questions and I listen and ask questions. And, and then when it's all said and done, oftentimes the first thing I'll say is, you know what, I'm really encouraged. And they look at me, I, sometimes I get the deer in the headlight, the cocked head, like, have you not been listening to us the last 45 minutes? I mean, we are an absolute mess. Our marriage is a wreck. And you're encouraged? Well, what's there to be encouraged about? And I'll say, listen, you know why I'm encouraged? It's because I haven't heard anything today that I haven't heard before. I haven't heard anything. You haven't said anything that I have not heard before. There's nothing new or different about your situation. In fact, guess what? I've struggled with the very same things you're struggling with. In fact, just last night, Kelly and I were dealing with that same issue, or maybe last year. Maybe the difference was I didn't have a knife and I wasn't chasing her around the kitchen, but, you know, <laughs> the, the heart, the root issue was the same. We got at odds with one another, and, and we were not loving one another and caring for one another being christ-like and 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 the whole, the point is listen there's hope for you you're not alone you're not alone in this thing and what's even more encouraging to know that maybe your pastor struggles with some of the same things you struggle with or your 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 other believers in the church struggle with the same things battle the same things i think what's most encouraging is that jesus faced every temptation that we will ever face in life. You're like, what are you talking about? Well, what does Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16 mean? It says this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think what the writer of Hebrews was saying there was in his humanness, Jesus can relate to our struggle with sin, not that he would ever give in to temptation. Um, he, he, he could not be tempted. He would not be tempted. We know that. It's called his impeccability, right? Right? However, from a human standpoint, the fact that he was a man, he can relate to our struggle with sin. He knows what it's like to, to walk on a sin-cursed earth. And so he's able to empathize with whatever you're going through. 
And that should give us confidence to approach him. Why? To get grace and mercy to help us fight sin and temptation. How cool is that? And so the promise here that no temptation is remarkable, unique to you, in other words, gives us hope that we can overcome any temptation. Well, that's the first promise. No temptation is remarkable. How about the second promise? No temptation is unbearable. No temptation is unbearable. Notice the next phrase. He says, and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. So the second thing that we can trust God for, we can count on God for, uh, is that he will be faithful to never allow us to be in a tempting situation that is more than we can handle. God mercifully puts limits on temptation based on what he knows we can bear. Psalm 103, verse 14, for he himself knows our frame, he is mindful that we are but what? Dust. I think about a potter fashioning a a, a clay pot, right? A master potter, he he knows just how much pressure to apply to shape that that vase or that pot and not break it. Put too much pressure, you break it, you ruin it, right? God doesn't do that. God never ruins us. No temptation will ever be too hard or too long. One of my favorite books that John MacArthur wrote uh, years ago uh, called The Vanishing Conscience, he said this, God will never allow you to face any test that is more than you at any given point in your spiritual life can handle. And then the example he used was Jesus and his disciples in the garden. Remember what happened in the garden? When, 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 the, when the, uh, Jesus and his disciples were there in the garden of Gethsemane and the soldiers came and Jesus asked them, John 18, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus said, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these go their way. And then it says this, to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. In other words, Jesus knew those guys weren't ready to get arrested at that point. That's why they all split, right? And so he mercifully protected them and he didn't allow his disciples to get arrested because they weren't spiritually strong enough to handle it. I mean, what did Peter do? He thought he was strong enough to handle it. He goes and follows Jesus, and what does he do? He denies him three times. Now, we know in the end, all of them, except for John, gloriously endured a martyr's death. They got ready, right? It was just a matter of time. One of my favorite memories, whenever we go out to dinner to Outback, it's one of our favorite restaurants as a family to go to Outback, and uh, when, when, when our kids were little, when we'd go to Outback, I don't know what it was about our boys, Zach and, and Jacob, but we'd walk into the Outback, we'd sit down at the booth, and the very first thing they do, they start unwrapping that napkin. You've been to Outback? And they pulled out that stinking huge knife, right? They, they, they knew it was in there. They, they were living, but we're going to Outback? Sweet, man. There's, they got those big old knives in there. So they would pull out that knife, and they would like want to start sword fighting or something, you know, and we'd be like, hey, 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 let us see those. They'd give us those, right? And we'd, we'd take the knives away. Why? Because they weren't able to handle that at that time, right? Um, parents don't let their children get into situations they can't handle, right? Everything is filtered through uh, the, the wise and loving and protective hand of parents. Now, hopefully you're a parent like that, right? You, when your kid was walking up to, or, or crawling up the stairs, you didn't go, hey, honey, look at that, it's cute. You know, you're like right behind them going like this, right? Or you just take them right off the stairs and don't let them climb the stairs because they're not ready to climb the stairs. And I think this is important for us to understand that Satan just can't do anything he wants to us. Nothing ever touches our lives that hasn't first passed through the wise, loving hands of our Heavenly Father. Everything must first be inspected by Him, approved by Him, to make sure that nothing comes to us that will overwhelm us or destroy us. 
Paul promised here that God will never allow a temptation to be so great that it is impossible to resist or beyond our ability to withstand. In other words, there is no such thing as an irresistible temptation. We should never say, well, I just can't take this anymore or I can't keep doing this. We, we can't excuse our sin by saying it's too hard, it's, it's too, I can't resist this. No, be, be honest, take responsibility for your sin and admit that what you really mean is I won't take this anymore and I don't want to keep doing this, right? That's what you're really saying and if we give in to temptation, it's not because we were under too much pressure but because we failed to rely on God's resources and we chose to sin instead, And so the promise here that no temptation is unbearable gives us hope that we can overcome any temptation. Well, there's a third and final promise here. No temptation is inescapable. No temptation is inescapable. Look at verse 13 again. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of what? Escape also so that you will be able to endure it. So the third promise thing that we can trust God for, we can count on God for, is that he will be faithful to always provide a way out of temptation, a way of escape, as Paul calls it here. That word literally means the exit. He'll provide the exit. Um, In ancient manuscripts, this word was used to describe the end or the completion of something. Now, this could be understood in, in, in a couple ways, I think, when it says, with the temptation, God will provide the way of escape also. I think the way it's traditionally understood, it's the way I grew up thinking about it, is that for every temptation, there is a way out. Every temptation, there's a way out. And it's kind of like Indiana Jones. Remember that guy? Right, He'd be being chased down by some enemy. The walls would be closing in. He's frantically looking for an escape. And at the very last second, he hits something and the thing opens and he slides out and he grabs his hat and he runs away. And like, he escaped, right? So we're looking, for this, we're looking for this escape hatch. We're looking for the special button. We're doing, you know, where, how do I get out of this thing? Well, I don't think that's what... Paul was talking about it all here. I think the right way to understand this is that for every temptation, there is one way out. In other words, every temptation has the same way of escape, and it's not a secret. You don't have to go around looking for it and hope you find it at the last second. What is it? Notice he says, but with the temptation, he'll provide the way of escape also so that you'll be able to endure it. The that there is the purpose, the result. In other words, he's explaining the way of escape. What is the the way of escape? That you would be able to endure it, to bear up under it. The way of escape from every temptation, you ready for this, is endurance. James 1 Verse 2, we already read this. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing in other words the way out is through the way out is through you don't 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 be looking for an escape hatch right you're in a tunnel right you're in this tunnel temptation is like a a tunnel and the only way out is to go through to the other side don't be looking for an escape door right somewhere along the way James 1.12, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, once he has passed the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. James 5.11, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So what, 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 what's, the, what's the hope here? The hope is that there is no excuse for us to stay stuck in sin because Paul promised here that God would provide a way out of that temptation, a way out of that sin. And God doesn't take us out of temptation, but he leads us through it to the other side. And so instead of trying to get out of it, how about crying out to God to help you fight and resist and endure? 2 Peter 2.9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. 
You may not know how to rescue yourself, but God knows how to rescue you. 2 Timothy 4.18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What, what is the key to endurance? What, what, what are we talking about? How do you, how do you fight temptation? What, what is one of the keys, key instruments or weapons to fight sin and temptation? How about prayer? Exactly, prayer. Prayer is the key. Matthew 6.13 Jesus taught the disciples to pray, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Matthew 26, 41, Jesus said to the disciples in the garden when they fell asleep, when he was off agonizing in prayer, he said, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. How often when we're tempted that initial temptation comes that 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 tough temptation rears its ugly head do we go oh no and we start thinking about everything instead of immediately going to prayer immediately begin praying and asking the lord to 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 take that away and and to, to lead us through this and endure and so the promise that no temptation is inescapable gives us hope that we can overcome any temptation So the next time your toughest temptation rears its ugly head, remember, it's not remarkable, it's not unbearable, and it's not inescapable. Why? Because God says that no temptation has overtaken you with that which is common to man, and I'm faithful, I'm faithful. I'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able But with every temptation, I will provide a way of escape so you'll be able to endure it. Hopefully you all read Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you guys have read Pilgrim's Progress? Got to put that on your bucket list. If you haven't read it, you got to get it, read it. Very profound book. Probably the most read book in the English language, second only to the Bible. Okay, so that should tell you something how important it is for you to read it. It's an analogy of the Christian life. It follows a guy named Christian, right? Uh, from his journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city, so basically fleeing uh, sin and, 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 and wrath and, and hell and, and, and making it to heaven. And so he, he, the, the book, of John Bunyan, the Puritan who wrote this, just kind of follows Christian on this journey that he takes and all these uh, interesting analogies of the Christian life and the things we face along the, the path of, 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 of walking towards heaven. And at one point in the book... He um, is befriended by a, uh, by a guy named Hopeful. Love that. Have a, wouldn't it be great to have a companion that walked with you through life called Hopeful? And so Christian and Hopeful wander off the king's highway and fall asleep on the property of giant despair. Dun, dun, dun. Giant despair. You do not want to be anywhere near this guy. Giant despair captures them and takes them to Doubting Castle where he locks them in a dirty, smelly dungeon and doesn't give them anything to eat or drink and he beats them and he tries to convince them just to kill themselves because there's no hope of them ever escaping alive. And after praying, Christian realizes that the whole time he's had this key in his pocket that opens up every lock and doubting castle. And you know what the name of the key was? Promise. A key called promise. And so Hopeful says, well, take it out and use it. That's a good friend, right? And Christian responded. He said, what a fool I am. I lie in this stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. What am I doing in this stinking dungeon? I mean, I have this promise. I've got this key, and I could have got out anytime I wanted to. And so he took that key, and he locked all the doors, and he escaped. And I would say to you that 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is our key of promise. We got this key, right? It's our key. We've got it with us all the time. Don't be a fool, take it out and use it. I mean, why should we stay trapped in in the stinking dungeon of sin, plagued by doubt? Because, you know, sin makes us doubt, ultimately our salvation, right? 
or overwhelmed with despair. That's what happens, right, when we give an invitation, we're overwhelmed with despair. When we could be walking in the freedom that God has provided us through his son, Jesus Christ. And he's ultimately, his death and resurrection is at the heart of these promises that God was faithful to provide a means for sin to be defeated in our lives. And that was through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you to, if you don't have this verse memorized, uh, or maybe you've forgotten it over the years and, and uh, maybe brush it off, it's like taking out the key. Oh, I just found this old key in this you know, chest. I'm gonna shine it up. I'm gonna put it right here in my pocket. I'm gonna put it around my neck on a chain. I'm gonna remember it's right here with me and I'm gonna use it every day of my life uh, whenever I'm faced with temptation, amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, this, these promises that we know are straight from your heart and that we can completely trust you to be faithful to keep these promises to us. And if, if any time one of these things doesn't seem to be true, uh, it's not because you failed, because you cannot fail. It's because we did. We feel, failed to, to embrace these promises, to apply these principles. And so we just thank you for the grace and mercy that you have for us in Christ. We thank you that he uh, lived that perfect life that we could never live. He never, ever gave in to temptation. And so he earned our salvation by his righteous life and through uh, his death when he took the punishment for our sin and all the times we do give in the temptation and sin, Lord, he took that punishment, your wrath upon him, and Lord, that we can live in freedom from sin uh, with the hope of heaven because of the work uh, of Jesus Christ, both in his life and his death. And Lord, I pray you'd help us as we continue to battle with sin and temptation Lord, that we would remember these three promises and they would give us hope that we'd never get so uh, down, so overwhelmed with, with doubt and despair. Lord, that we forget uh, these promises. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.